Welcome to Bardflies, a podcast about truly disastrous financial management techniques. This week, an obscure play that may tell us more about Shakespeare's attitudes about people than anything useful about money, as Timon of Athens discovers that he can't just borrow his way out of debt. I'm Will Quinn. And I'm James Smith. This is episode 30, No Money, Mo problems. Once I built a tower to the sun, brick, mortar, and lime. Once I built a tower, now it's done. Brother, can you spare a dime? James, would you care to give us a plot summary of this most misanthropic of plays? The wealthy and generous Timon begins the play as the Toast of Athens, renowned for his lavish banquets and equally munificent lending practices. He pays liberal commissions to artists without paying much attention to the quality of their work. He buys up the debts and offers dowries on behalf of his servants so they can marry. He springs friends from debtor's prison, and he hands out money like there's no tomorrow to all who ask, with nary so much as a credit check. Yet all is not well with Timon's balance sheet, Will. Even at his initial party, where all his, quote, friends, end quote, flatter him to his face, the ugly specter of his downfall looms. We learn that Timon's servant Flavius has repeatedly tried to tell him that his debts now exceed his assets, and that Timon is now left horribly overexposed, while the philosopher Apomontus obliquely makes the case that Timon's beneficiaries are not what they seem. His only true friend beyond these two is Alcibiades, the noble commander of an Athenian brigade who only wants his company. Soon enough, the bill comes due when a senator demands that Timon make good on his debts only for Flavius to tell him that he has no liquidity at all. His attempts to collect from his creditors, including some whom he has just saved and who have inherited princely sums, are abject failures. All of his pals have nothing to offer but increasingly contrived excuses, which sends Timon into a dark rage. Meanwhile, Alcibiades faces serious problems of his own when one of his men kills someone in a fit of rage, and the Senate turns down Alcibiades' requests for clemency and a more lenient sentence. This leads to Alcibiades' banishment, and to his vows of revenge, vows that are echoed in Timon's decision to work with his servants for retribution against his faithless debtors. That retribution comes at a small dinner party, where Timon mockingly serves stones and water to his former friends, whom he then proceeds to attack before fleeing his home in an insane rage. Wandering outside of Athens, Timon finds a cave and becomes a hermit, living on foraged plants. While bitterly lamenting his fate, he discovers a load of gold in his hovel, the word of which travels to Alcibiades, Apomantus, and Flavius, who seek out Timon. Alcibiades, for his part, arrives with a pair of prostitutes who proceed to engage in stinging repartee over venereal disease. As you do. Timon decides to give the gold to Alcibiades to destroy Athens, whose elite betrayed him rather than honor their debts. And, for good measure, he also pays the prostitutes to spread as many STIs as they can around town. He pays off his artist friends, the poet and the painter, last, and refuses to give money to the senators who find him shortly thereafter. Apomantus then criticizes Timon for essentially stealing his cynical philosophy and adopting it for his own. Finally, his former steward Flavius shows up, his one true friend, and seeks to bring Timon back from self-imposed exile into Athens, where the fearful Senate hopes he can talk Alcibiades down from sacking the city. But Timon refuses and tells the senators to hang themselves before dying destitute. 
Alcibiades marches on the city, vowing vengeance on his enemies and Timon's, but mercy for the rest, before reading Timon's self-composed misanthropic epitaph. Here lies a wretched corpse of wretched soul bereft. Seek not my name, a plague consume, you wicked caitiffs left. Here lie I, Timon, who alive all living men did hate. Pass by and curse thy fill, but pass and stay not here thy gate. And that, Will, is the plot of Timon of Athens. One of the more, I mean, we've had some misanthropic plays, but this is, I would say, one of the more misanthropic of those misanthropic plays. Certainly, and uh, I feel the need to make an appointment with my financial counselor and certainly a, a bunch of accountants after uh, seeing where being too generous can lead you. Well, Will, I think uh, you raise an interesting point because I think not only does Timon need to spend some time with a wealth management professional and a financial advisor, it strikes me that he also needs to spend some time, you know, learning how to be a better boss, you know, learning how to be a better manager. He needs to, like, take some courses with, I don't know, Tony Robbins or something so he can learn to be better at yeah. dealing with his employees. Yeah, because it's, it's not just a cash flow issue in a sense, right? He actually has a steward who is trying to do that for him, and he just doesn't really listen to the men that he has hired to manage his estates because he's so focused on just giving it all away somewhat frivolously to anyone who asks. So this this sort of brings me to the first thing I wanted us to talk about today, Will, because I was reading this play and I was especially reading that one, you know, basically the passage in, I think it's act one, it might be act two, where the steward and Timon are having the conversation about Timon's financial situation and let me actually just find the Flavius's lines here. So basically, Flavius ref is reflecting on what's going on with, with Timon, and he says, He commands us to provide and give great gifts, and all out of an empty coffer. Nor will he know his purse will yield me this. Show him what a beggar his heart is, being of no power to make his wishes good. His promises fly so beyond his estate that what he speaks is all in debt. He owes for every word. He is so kind that he now pays interest for it. His land's put to their books. Well, would I were gently put out of office before I were forced to. Happier is he that hath no friend to feed, such that do even enemies succeed. I bleed inwardly for my lord. You know, well, working, as has been talked about on the pod many times, I work in the, what I like to call the motion picture business, but specifically I do the kind of very nuts and bolts type of producing, which is contracts, schedules, budgets, hiring people, firing people, hopefully not firing people too much, kind of the project management stuff. And I'm not exactly the boss of the production, but I, I'm often in the, this position that Flavius is in here, right, where you have the director, who's the sort of the creative vision and like giving the creative vision to the project and who is responsible for making creative decisions and will be often, you know, asking you for things. But it, but it is my job to manage the budget and make sure that we have the money for things and make sure we're saving money where we can and, and all that. And this, you know, this sentiment that Flavius is expressing is one of the most frustrating things that can happen to me personally in my job where you're like, you're trying to have a conversation with someone who wants something, you know, I, I don't know, wants, God knows what it, what it would be, right? Wants cannons firing in the background of a shot or something. <laughs> and you're trying to say, 
well, look, here's, you know, here's the balance sheet. Here's where we stand. You know, we have money for this, but not for this. Or, you know, if you, if you want the cannons, you can't have Napoleon's fancy costume or whatever, right? I'm making up examples here. So, right, in a, in a capital-intensive project like making a movie, and in fact, any capital-intensive project, I guess, right, like, you're always aware of how much things cost and what you're giving up when mm-hmm. you're, you know, what your opportunity cost is also. And it, it makes it incredibly difficult to do that job, and this is the position that Flavius is sort of in now, it seems, when you're beholden to someone's desires who wants certain things but also doesn't want to know what the opportunity cost is. And so I guess I don't have a specific question here as much as it's this is about sort of workplace dynamics. And I feel like probably many of our listeners can relate to this, right? It's like, what do you do when you're in Flavius's position and you have a boss who wants what he wants, but also isn't willing to hear that maybe he can't get that or can't get it without giving up something else that he wants? Yes. I mean, I think that this is a common situation with anybody who's maybe not the ultimate decision maker, but is running the day to day and is sort of watching issues and decision points unfold in front of them and is trying to bring them to the attention of a superior. You know, I think it's true in the political and policy world. It's it's certainly true in the business side as well. And there's an aspect here of truth to power, but it's almost even more than that in a sense, because Flavius is saying that he's brought this to Timon's attention many times. Timon's sort of in denial about it initially, and he's like, "Why? Why haven't you told me this? I used to have land all the way to Sparta." Yeah, yeah. The the I'll just read this line here. Timon says, "You make us me marvel. Wherefore at this time had you not fully laid my state before me, that I might have rated my expenses I had leave of me?" And Flavius says. You would not hear me if many leisures I proposed. Go to. Right. So I, I've, like, I've tried to talk to you about this, and you just won't listen to me. Yes, exactly. And, and I think that, you know, at the end of the day, it's, it's obviously Timon's fault here for not listening to Flavius and for not being uh, more mindful of his own financial situation. I think the challenge for somebody in Flavius's position or you know, anybody in the positions that you or I have held in our respective careers is trying to choose the opportune moment to elevate and tee up the conversation. And at the end of the day, you can't, um, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink, as the old saw goes. But there's also something to be said on the more positive side of thinking how you can break through to somebody like this. And unfortunately, I think it often means running the risk of being hated or extremely annoying to the person that you're Mm -hmm. employed by to either watch the budget or to be the skunk at the garden party, the fly in the ointment in the conversation to say, hey, I know that this sounds great and it's wonderful you want to issue all these loans and we love the work that the painter is doing and the poet and the jeweler and we're very happy with all of that. Everybody loves you. But you're aware, boss, that this is spending you into the ground and that we've had to sell things off for that. I mean, at the end of the day, maybe Timon doesn't want to hear that at all. I mean, that's the strong indication here. But there's a challenge for somebody like Flavius, because how do you break through to somebody like that? That's not obvious and not intuitive. And um, I think it's a real challenge at almost any level of management, particularly when you're in an advisory role and you're trying to 
you have sort of a fiduciary responsibility, but if somebody doesn't even want to have the conversation or doesn't recognize the things that you're saying as, as really yeah. valid, there's only so much you can do with them. I can also relate a little bit to Flavius's position here in that, you know, when you're in that position and you're the one who's trying to raise the alarm or trying to track the books, nonetheless, because you're not the final decision maker and, you know, you don't have access to what's happening in Timon's mind, right... I think it's very easy to fall into like, well, he doesn't want to talk about it, so that must mean that things are going to be fine. Right, right. And it's not even exactly a state of convincing yourself, but I think as people, right, we take cues from the people whom we are responsible to. Yes. And therefore, when they're like, oh, no, you know, it doesn't matter. It's not a, not a problem, right? It's very difficult, even if intellectually you're like, well, it seems like a problem to me. You know, yeah. looking at it, it seems like a problem. Yeah, but if it's not a concern to them, then it's very easy to be like, oh, well, they must know something that I don't know, or, you know, like, maybe there's other money right. that I didn't know about. Or, right, right, no, um, no, exactly, exactly right, and I think this is a major challenge as well, which is that there are times where you don't necessarily know all of the facts or considerations or concerns on your boss's mind, right? And in that sense, it's a very natural reaction and sometimes even justified. I mean, especially if you're, you're only one cog in a much larger machine, you know, it's a completely understandable reaction and approach. On the other hand, right, you run into the, the sort of inevitable, particularly if you're conscientious, which you and I are, James, we're very conscientious. You run the into most the, conscientious, <laughs> Will. The most conscientious. You run into feelings of dread, concern over the situation because you're sort of still thrust in the position of like, well, it is my job to worry about these things. And if I don't discharge those duties and keep bringing it up, it would be in some part, you know, my fault for not carrying out those duties to the best of my ability, even if it means having a, a less than comfortable relationship with the boss from time to time. But the other part of that, right, is if you're in Flavius's position, you're constantly having to choose your battles if you're managing a grand estate for somebody like right. Timon. You have many different things you need to talk to him about. And, well, I would say managing the balance sheet is probably the top foremost of those things. Mm -hmm. I don't know much about the management of Athenian estates, but I would presume that making sure that you don't have a cash flow problem is is the the chief among them and you're not overexposed. But nonetheless, he's in the difficult position, no doubt, of whatever Timon's top priority in the moment is, overtakes whatever long-term issue Flavius is trying to bring to his attention. And I think this is a standard issue with anybody that's in an executive role is the tyranny of the now and yeah. whatever they're fixated on in the moment. And for Timon, weirdly, it happens to be just dispensing patronage like there's no tomorrow without any real interest in what he's getting for his money, at least when he's commissioning work. It's a little bit different with his munificence vis-a-vis -vis all of the people that he's helping out quite altruistically. But nonetheless, right, Timon is focused on what he's focused on. He wants to talk about what he wants to talk about. The nuts and bolts of the, yeah, of the actual I, I state guess, aren't his interest, you know? I guess what it points to to me is the importance for that communication to really run both ways. I, I mean, one problem I, I feel like I've had with bosses or with directors or whatever is the problem of, like, there's the things that I want to communicate to them and I don't really know what's on their mind. And mm. I'll like communicate a few things. And there's always that problem of you sort of have eight things on your list 
right. and only the first three get answered. Right. And like maybe also two of those get answered with a question or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you don't actually end out getting like that much of what you need out of it. But it's also right to your point, maybe you are just one cog in the machine. And in fact, for certainly on a film, you are right. Like if you're in the producing position, then you are maybe the most important cog in making sure that everything runs, but you're not part of creative discussions with the director of photography or with the costumer, or, you know, whatever. Right. Like those people will generally come to you and be like, I had this conversation. This is what I need. I need X dollars, whatever. And like, it would be great to be across all those conversations, but it's just often not possible on a large project. Right. 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 Because right. you have so many other things that you're like, I can definitely imagine that the steward is looking at his top sheet and he's worried about how many amphorae of wine are we sending off to market this week or whatever. Right. <laughs> yes. and like he's yeah. got his own concerns. So anyway, I think what I'm trying to get at is it's important for him to communicate to time in and like probably to push through some of that discomfort and some of that feeling of, well, it seems like a problem. I really need to be sure it's not a problem, right? Like there's that, but it's also, look, it also does fall on, on time in, I think, where mm-hmm. like, I don't view this as just a problem with Flavius. I view no, this no. also as a problem where it's important for time in to be communicating with Flavius about like, what's my strategy? What am I thinking? Exactly. What I want to accomplish? And it might be, as seems to be the case, it doesn't seem like Timon actually has an answer to those questions. But you can't really, if it's true that he doesn't have an answer to those questions, then it's really difficult for me to say, well, it's Flavius's fault no, that yeah, completely. Timon's estate. Right, he's executing what Timon is trying to have him execute. Yes. It just happens that there's no rhyme or reason to why those things Yes, absolutely. So an interesting analogy comes to mind. So I'm a I'm a big process guy. I believe in trying to set up processes to manage and help people make decisions in the best way possible, give them the space, the analysis, the sort of wisdom and advice in conversation to make decisions before they become completely urgent. Not everybody functions that way, right? Some people, every executive, every leader ultimately gets the process that they want. Mm -hmm. That process may not be the optimal one for actually making things happen. It might be the way that they want to work, but um, this often gets brought up in my world where people talk about national security decision-making, often in the case of... um, you know, the National Security Council, right, which is the staff in the White House plus the principals across all of the cabinet agencies that help provide the president with advice and policy options and how to deal with national security issues. And um, my friend John Gans has a book out, which I'll recommend in due course, where he talks about how each president and the national security staff have sort of evolved and and changed the process across each presidential administration, partially due to factors that are sort of outside of presidential or, or really anyone's control, but also due to how each president's personality and their main officers structure the process for them. And some people mm-hmm. don't want to make decisions. Some people don't really want to deal with problems. Some people do, of course. I mean, almost everybody thinks that they do, mm-hmm. particularly when you get up to the level of president of the United States or cabinet officer. I mean, it comes with the territory. But not everybody wants to make decisions on pressing issues, maybe sometimes because it's not clear how to solve them, maybe because they're in denial, for whatever reason, right? And so even setting up a process to help 
routinely say, hey, boss, this is the month where we talk about how much wine you have outgoing and you're over budget in your commission for, for sculpture and you've, you've done your debt relief charity for the month and you're way over budget, you know, you can only get Timon to sit down if Timon wants to sit down with you. You can sort of try to force the issue, but you do have to have at least the buy-in from him to, yeah. to recognize that that's important. Timon's completely out to lunch. I mean, he makes other people who are only sporadically interested in their jobs actually look positively conscientious by comparison. Well, I think, Will, that's a good place to pivot to our next topic because... So reading this play, I felt like I got a very strong sense of what Shakespeare like wanted you to take away from it, which basically seems to be that Timon is betrayed by all these people that he's helped out over the years, right? Like it, it feels like what Shakespeare feels about this is that there's some great injustice done to Timon. You can tell me if you don't agree with that, but that was basically what I took away from it. And it was very difficult for me to credit that because to everything that you're saying, I'm like reading all the stuff that Timon says, all the stuff that he's been doing, and I'm like, this guy is like really responsible for his own downfall. Sure, I guess some of these people could be nicer and like when he asks them for money, you know, who he's lent money to in the past or given these lavish, lavish gifts to, whatever, they could say, sure, I'll help you out. But at the end of the day, they're just enforcing the reasonable boundaries that Timon has not enforced. And also, a lot of them are not even people that Timon has lent money to, right? It's not like Timon's a bank and he's lending money to people so that they can start a business or, you know, mm-hmm. get buy a house, whatever, right? He's just someone who, get, who likes giving lavish gifts. Mm-hmm. And so, like, for him to then turn around and be like, hey, you remember that nice ring that I gave you? This is not an example that's in the play, but f- for example... I would say it is consonant with what he's doing in the play, right? For him to be like, hey, like, remember all that nice ring I gave you? Why don't you now lend me, I, I don't know, 50 talents so I can pay back my debt to this other guy who I was borrowing from so that I could give you those gifts? It's kind of a weird thing to do. Yes, yes. So tell me if you agree. I, I'm sort of advancing the, the thesis that really time is basically to blame for his own situation. So I... Actually, I agree with you, but I'm not sure that Shakespeare disagrees with you, to be clear. I mean, and this is one of the contradictions and one of the reasons this play is kind of a mess, in my view, is Mm -hmm. it's not like I think Shakespeare would have been completely insensate to the fact that Timon's a bit of a fool and that there's a contradiction between his freely professed willingness to give to people, including his decision to freely give to his servant so he can marry a woman who's beyond his social status. And then he calls it in like it's a debt, to your point, but it was actually a free gift, and he made that clear in the moment, Yeah, even in the play. So there's a certain contradiction in Timon's misanthropy. And I sort of sympathize with the cynical philosopher, uh, Apomantis, because he's pointing out that in some ways Timon behaved foolishly and isn't really entitled to be <laughs> to be cynical to be enraged a, to be enraged in a deeper philosophical sense at the perfidy of people in some ways he sort of brought this on himself by behaving like an idiot not because he's arrived at it through deep philosophical <laughs> deep philosophical rumination but you know i i advance this interpretation but many others fixate on the theme or the idea that you're sort of indirectly advancing that Shakespeare 
sees this as a condemnation of Timon's faithless friends, which I think it is intended that way, but Marx and Engels, I think, actually um, quoted this play in one of their books to sort of show the perfidy of the capitalist system. It's also very popular in communist China. In fact, I, I had a student write a paper last semester talking about how Zhang Zemin, former president of China, actually quoted one of the passages while giving really? a speech to the, to the Red Army against corruption, People's Liberation Army, while giving a speech against, you know, no personal enrichment should occur on your watch, you're stewards of the state. And of course, the irony, though, is that Timon utters some things about money that sort of make sense after he's become embittered. But it's it's undercut a bit by his own behavior. It's not as if he's completely blameless here. And I think Shakespeare, it would have been very easy for Shakespeare to write it in a way that made him completely blameless. But you, you get the sense he's dispensing... That's he true. He does do, the, yeah, yeah. Go he ahead, does go a ahead. good job of both. Well, I'm I'm just saying this to reinforce your point. I mean, he does do a good job of showing you the perspective that other people have about Timon, right? Which is, you know, one, there's the perspective of the senators and the lords or whoever who are borrowing from him, who are like, this guy's an absolute clown show, <laughs> right? Like, yeah, like, well, what's he got for me today? What's he sending me today, right? Like, they're clearly. You know, and it doesn't speak well of their character in the sense that they're sort of like, oh, yeah, I'm going to keep taking candy from this baby. I'm going to keep getting while the getting's good, right? Uh, That doesn't necessarily speak well of them. But then also, it's clear that Timon has created a situation whereby he's like really allowing them and even encouraging them to do that. So it's almost difficult to fault them for that. And then you also have Appomantis, who's talking about how, I mean, I'll just read one of these passages here. I scorn thy meat. Twould choke me, for I should e'er flatter thee. Oh, you gods! What a number of men eats Timon, and she sees him not. I wonder men dare trust themselves with men. Methinks they should invite them without knives, good for their meat and safer for their lives. There's much example for it. The fellow that sits next her. Now parts bread with her, pledges the breath of her in a divided draught, is the readiest man to kill her. It has been proved. If I were a rich man, I should fear to drink at meals, lest they should spy my windpipe's dangerous notes. Great ones should drink with armour on their throats. Apomantis is sort of pointing out the practicalities of what's wrong with what Timon is is doing. All of which is to illustrate your point, Will, that I think Shakespeare does a very good job of showing other people's attitudes towards it and reflecting the fact that Timon's attitude is extremely naive, at the very least. Yes, and I think that this is one of the central issues or problems, if I might say, this being a problem play, with this actual narrative and the whole structure of this thing, right? Because Timon's wisdom, if you want to call it that, at the end of the play, his misanthropy, is kind of unearned in the broadest sense. I mean, this is sort of what I mean when Appomantis comes and confronts him at the end and is laying into him for ostensibly stealing his whole cynical shtick. The problem with Timon isn't so much that he's been duped, because of course he has been, But the tragedy is significantly less poignant than it should be in some ways, because Mm -hmm. he's he's traded essentially this unthinking beneficence towards everyone, 
without really knowing the value of anything, least of all money, but certainly not the value of his friendships, not really caring the quality of the work that he's presented, not really caring what people are doing with his money. He's just sort of freely dispensed with it. And you can say, oh, what a great philanthropist and lover of mankind, but somebody who doesn't know the value of anything can't really be said to love it. Similarly, he's adopted this just broad shotgun blast of misanthropy in his final lines in the play. And it's not entirely clear that that's fully earned either, right? It seems like he's just swinging from one extreme to the next. And a lot of this could have been avoided, frankly, by being a little steadier and a little less prone to making dumb decisions. So in that sense, it's sort of... I understand you can certainly read it as a broadside against uh, usury and the lenders calling in their debts against this great benefactor and lover of mankind, but it doesn't really quite feel that way. And Timon's reaction in turn, the tragedy of it is significantly lessened by the fact that he's essentially a moron. You know what it actually brings to mind, Will, at least in the context of this conversation, although I hadn't thought of this before, is a line from another Shakespeare play, which has... I actually would say has become one of my favorite single lines in Shakespeare, which is in Henry V, when the Dauphin, speaking to the King of France, says, self-love, my liege, is not so vile as sin as self-neglecting. Now, like, obviously, that's the Dauphin saying this, who is hardly the most admirable or noble character in Shakespeare. But I think it gets at kind of this idea, right, where Timon's unthinking beneficence is actually incredibly self-destructive and in fact it would be better like it would be better in some like even moral sense for timon to be more considerate of his own needs yeah well i think that there's something to be said for those who are capable of not becoming a burden or a problem for others there's a certain moral imperative to not be a complete mess if you can avoid Mm -hmm. being one And Timon, to a certain extent, is he's created a situation that he could have completely avoided. He's within his means to completely avoid, and he has just not done his due diligence there. And if to those to whom much is given, much is expected, this man is is falling down on the expectations of, of making smart, practical, incremental decisions that would have allowed him to be completely generous with people without necessarily setting himself on the road to penury and complete humiliation. So that's sort of what I take away there. I mean, a rich guy doesn't earn too much of our pity by making uh, horribly irresponsible decisions with his money. It can be sad if the person was, was totally duped, but it seems like all of this was within his power to know and at least hedge against in some way. Yeah. So, Will, with all that being said, I'm getting the impression that you, like me, did not have the most favorable reaction to this play. So tell me, and and maybe this can fold into our our rankings, I guess, one, how do you think this holds up with our other plays? And two, what do you think isn't working here? Yeah, so this is not his best, shall we say. I don't think it's his worst either. You know, like like so many of the problem plays, I think it's provoked a more interesting discussion than the play is pleasurable to read, let alone see performed. So I can get to sort of the ranking and superposition of things in a bit. 
I've had more fun discussing it with you than I than I did reading it. Mm-hmm. That said, I guess what I what I think doesn't work is Tymon he's sort of robbed of much pathos for all of the reasons we were just talking about. He sort of swings from one extreme to the next and doesn't seem to have acquired any self-knowledge along the way. Therefore, Tymon's whole arc as a character feels a little ridiculous and unearned to me. And I think that's the central problem with it. I think that there are some amusing characters. There are some funny moments. Certainly the exchange with the prostitutes and Alcibiades and all of that is definitely amusing. Appomantis, good character. But none of that can kind of redeem the fact that the point of the play doesn't really feel like it's been sharpened or refined. I think Shakespeare lost sight of what he wanted to say in this one. Mm -hmm. Um, That's sort of my reaction. What about you? What doesn't work in this one? And then we can turn it back to me and I'll I'll give you uh, an actual ranked... uh, Yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So I think to me, like it it feels like it has maybe a little bit of the Troilus and Cressida problem, which is something (laughs) we talked about when we talked about that play, where it feels like Shakespeare wants this to be a play that's about faithlessness and about the negative impact of money on people and on society and continuing some things we've seen in other plays and also in Merchant of Venice. And that's not the problem with Troilus and Cressida. Where it relates to Troilus and Cressida, in my mind, is that it seems like the thing that Shakespeare wants the play to do thematically doesn't really work narratively. And here it works even less than in that play. Mm. (laughs) There is a just a dissonance between theme and narrative, both in all the dimensions we were talking about, where Timon really ends up being, to me, not a particularly sympathetic character. And, like, what he's doing at the beginning doesn't make any sense, and then where he ends up kind of is unearned. You know, so that makes his character less sympathetic to me. But also, what I come away from the play with is not a feeling of, like, oh, I've learned something about, you know, about these corrosive effects of money, for instance, which I think is basically what it's supposed to be about. Instead, like, really what I've learned about is why this guy's an idiot. So uh, to me, I guess it's just fundamentally it fails thematically. It it fails to make any useful point about its subject mm. matter. And then also, like, it's just not that traumatic. It's not fun to read uh, yeah. in some fundamental way, right? I think all these tragedies we've been reading have very powerful storylines. Or if maybe, I don't know, maybe you would argue like, well, like Hamlet, it's just he's delaying his action. But for, but for whatever reason, the way that he's written it makes it compelling and makes it dramatic. This play is not dramatic to me. Yeah. So w- w- with all that said, Will, this play is going directly to the bottom of the rankings for me. Now, it's not going... Interesting. I think Edward III has locked up the bottom yes. ranking. Yes, I was going to say. For, for um, all time. But this one... I didn't think we were going to see a play that I was going to like less than Two Gentlemen of Verona or Titus Andronicus, but this play has done it. Now, Taming of the Shrew is an interesting case because Taming of the Shrew, I think, is equally incoherent, (laughs) but I think even that play is at least more entertaining. So for me, this play is dropping in at number 29 of 30, second from the bottom, Time of Athens. And for me, the MVP is Apomantis. Um, what about you? I am going to say third from the bottom for me. I liked it a little bit more, partially because of this conversation, than Two Gentlemen of Verona. And definitely Edward III is definitely the worst of the plays we've read, and I don't see that changing uh, I don't, anytime I don't soon. S- 
I do not see that changing either. Yeah, so it's number 28 for me. This play's pretty bad. It's, you know, even if, like, if I were to make the most generous interpretation of the ending, that maybe a more just society is possible because of Timon's suffering as an example of what goes wrong in an unjust society, I'm not at all convinced that Alcibiades, of mm-hmm. all people, is going to be the messenger of justice. Alcibiades being... I assume it's the same Alcibiades as in Thucydides, right? So the guy who's sort of, right. uh, yeah, yeah. he rats and double rats, mm-hmm. to, to paraphrase Churchill, That's right. betraying Athens and going over and That's right. all sorts of rank skullduggery. That being said, I'm going to pull Alcibiades in for the MVP solely for oh, showing up to Timon's hovel with a pair of prostitutes, which Timon engages in such a vigorous Absolutely. Uh, back and forth. I hear that. So Alcibiades, just for the sheer shamelessness and the fact that he's uh, one of the most interesting and crazy characters in classical like literature. And Will, do you have a recommendation for us this week? I do. I do. I mentioned earlier my friend John Gans's book, White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American Way of War. John was a speechwriter, he was chief speechwriter over at DOD in the late Obama administration. Uh, He works up at University of Pennsylvania now. And this book comes out of his doctoral dissertation, and it focuses on the the NSC staff. It's a very well-written, not ponderous translation of his dissertation into a very popular and well-done book, where you really get a sense of how the staff at the White House working on national security issues has helped presidents make decisions, both good ones and bad ones, sometimes uh, have been the star of the show, sometimes have engaged in, um, in the case of people like uh, Oliver North, in illegal and clandestine (laughs) activities. Uh, And you really get a sense for all the personalities that have been involved over the years with that particular institution. And uh, I can't really recommend it uh, highly enough for people that are interested in aspects of how Washington work and in the national security process. I would really recommend this book to, to anyone interested in those subjects. What's the title of the book again, Will? The book is White House Warriors, How the National Security Council Transformed the American Way of War by John Gans. And that's our show. Next time on Bardflies, we can't say the name, but we'll be discussing a certain Scottish play to see if it holds up with the other great tragedies. If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. Share the show with your friends and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter or drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.